Good morning. Happy 4th of July weekend. One of my favorite weekends of the year. It's my father's birthday on July 4th. He likes to remind me of that and thanks you for celebrating his birthday. And uh, I am very privileged to have grown up on uh, military bases on Memorial Day and July 4th. And I think there's like nothing like that. Sometimes I grieve that some of our younger individuals have bought into a lie that we are not an incredibly blessed nation. We've been told a lie that uh, suggests that so much freedom that we've been given is just worthless. Travel the world over and see how most of the world lives. And one would be incredibly grateful for where we live. Let's uh, bow in a word of prayer and then we'll look at Colossians 3, 7 to 10. Father, we would readily confess that there are problems within our nation. We would readily confess that our greatest problems are a denial of you, a denial of your word, your truth, your morality, your ethics. But we have other problems, without a doubt. But Lord, the truth is that very few in history have had the freedoms that we enjoy. At least a third of the world's population could not gather safely this morning to open your word and to pray to you. Very few have the privileges and the wealth and prosperity that you have blessed us with. Very few have the educational advantages and even a republic, a faulty one, but a republic in which to live. Lord, while not denying that there is much to be done in our country, we want to thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy and the ability to gather together as believers or potentially future believers for some, to read your inspired and errant word, to pray openly, to be transformed by your truth and to live out your truth even in hostile environments. Father, you have blessed us and rather than being jaded by lies, help us to be grateful by reality. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, Colossians 3, 7 to 10, speak to us Encourage us, transform us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. I love baseball. I've always loved baseball. I got to play baseball into college and am grateful for that. One of my favorite players, statistically, not based on attitude, is Ty Cobb, the Georgia Peach. 
You know anything about Ty Cobb, you know that he was a 12-time batting champion. But we're into revisionist history in the United States, so some would say 11-time batting champion as they redo his batting average. I'm going to say 12. Put this in perspective. Honus Wagner is an eight-time batting champion. That's the next best. Tony Perez also an eight-time batting champion. That's the next best. He played center field for the Detroit Tigers from about 1905 to about 1926, then finished off two years with the Philadelphia Athletics, who right now are the Oakland Athletics, soon to be the Las Vegas Athletics. They get around. Ty Cobb batted over 400 three times. It's only been done 11 times in modern history. He did it three times. Unbelievable. He was an MVP in 1911. He was a triple crown winner in 1909. Highest batting average, highest RBIs, highest home runs. Nine that year. He has stolen home plate more than anyone in baseball history, 54 times. He led the league in runs batted in four times. He led the league in stolen bases six times. He is the highest cumulative batting average. I said 367 the first hour, knowing full well that some revisionist was going to say 366. They've recalculated his average. I'm sticking with the old one, 367. He is an incredible player. He was voted in 1999 by the Sporting News as the third best player in baseball history. You would expect the first two to be Yankees, but only one was. Babe Ruth, but then Willie Mays, New York Giants. He was number three. He is an incredible player. When he was voted in, the inaugural voting in, in Cooperstown in upstate New York, he had the highest percentage of any player voted in, at least to that point. But although he's statistically a great player, his attitude needed adjusting. He was actually voted the dirtiest player in Major League history. Now, maybe that's because of a hit biography by a guy named Alvin. I don't know. But we do know that statistically, he spiked more other players than anyone in Major League history. He is reported to have been caught sharpening his spikes just to go into someone. Now, maybe that's because he was on base more often and stole more bases, but he did have a high slide with his cleats up. He had a foul mouth. He had a hot temper. There's a well-told story of a barroom fight. If you read it five times, you'll read five different versions. The guy died, the guy didn't die. The guy was African-American, the guy was white. Everyone agrees it was a waiter. 
And what we do know is that Ty beat him up very severely, if not ended his life. He's thought to be a racist. That's remarkable and disgusting. But it's remarkable because his grandfather was a preacher who actually preached quite vociferously against racism. But maybe it didn't penetrate Ty's life. After his career was over, he came down with cancer. He was visited by his doctor, Dr. Nesbitt, who taught him about Christ. And he said that Ty was really interested in Jesus. So interested that Dr. Nesbitt contacted Pastor Robinson. He wrote about it in Christianity Today. He was of the Westminster Church, Presbyterian Church in Atlanta. And Dr. Robinson regularly came to visit Ty. The first time he said Ty was just too tired. So he said a scripture and prayed and then left. The next time he came to visit Ty, he confronted Ty with his sins. And Ty readily agreed. And Ty accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. And there became fruit. Over the waning weeks, Ty would regularly look at scripture. His favorite passage was 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 8, the love chapter. He loved that chapter because he recognized that none of it applied to him in his old self. All of it applies to him in his new self. That is, he began to show people love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not easily angered. He began to put on that fruit. According to Pastor Robinson, there was incredible transformation. The last time Pastor Robinson visited Ty was two days before his death. And Ty said, I want you to tell your congregation not to be like me. Not to waste their lives and not to wait for a crisis before they come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Tell them, don't be like me. Embrace Jesus young, live for Jesus, and care for people of every stripe and color. Don't be like me. Then he said, I feel the strong arms of the Lord under me. I'm ready. And Ty went home to glory. I think that's what Paul's talking about today. He's talking about the difference between our pre-Christ days and our after-Christ, our post-Christ days. He's talking about what God desires to do in your life and in my life. And if we know Jesus, there needs to be fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is, not might be, could be, ought to be. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. God expects when we come to Christ, now we are empowered by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and he expects transformation in our lives. A difference between old Jeff and new Jeff. A difference between how I live without Christ and now how I live with Christ.
I want to pick up in Colossians 3, 7 to 10. This is a real continuation. If it weren't illogical and impossible, I really should have preached Colossians 3, 1 to 10 altogether. Last week, we saw five vices that we ought to put off as we grow in Christ. Today, we're going to see six more. A total of 11 vices. Not the only vices, but 11 that ought to be put off in Christ followers. Let me read from Colossians 3, 7 to 10. In these, you two once walked. That is in the vices, the five he's already mentioned. That's how you once walked when you were living in them. But now you've come to Christ, if indeed you believe in Christ. But now you must put them all away. And he gives us six more. Anger and wrath, I think synonymous, he's stacking them. Malice, which really is an overarching term that covers the other ten. Slander and obscene talk from your mouth. And then the six, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The point is this. When you and I pray to receive Christ, we pass from death to life. We pass from a future of damnation separated from God to a future in which we come to Christ and we belong to Christ and we have a future, an eternal future with Christ in the heavenlies. We were once at enmity with God and now we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. When we come to Christ, that's a one moment spot. It's justification. We are declared righteous. And then we have the rest of our life, progressive sanctification, in which you and I become more and more like Christ. And it doesn't go like this. It goes like this. We take three steps forward and two steps back and four steps forward and one step back and we become more like Christ and then we give ground to Satan and then we're empowered by God's spirit and we take more victory in our life and then we slide back a little more victory and a little slide back and, and it's this progressive sanctification as we become more and more like Christ. That's what Paul's talking about in verses seven and eight. In these you once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. And he would say that day after day, it's in the present, we put it all away, and tomorrow we have to put it all away, and a week from now we have to put it all away, because we don't just have this transformation of our character, that is a process. We have a transformation of our relationship with the Lord. That's not a process. That's instantaneous. We belong to Christ if we believed in Christ. But now empowered by God's spirit, we begin to become more and more and more like Jesus. And so today he gives us six characteristics. The first two are anger and wrath. Jorge and thumos. You can hear the word thermometer, heat, anger. Wrath. I think applying to believers, people, they're synonymous. Applying to God, they're not quite synonymous. Rarely is the word anger, Jorge, used of God. It's usually the wrath. 
And wrath is a real attribute of the king of kings. God is a wrathful God. But he's also a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a patient God. He's a gracious God. His attributes constrain one another so that every attribute is perfectly executed towards humanity with complete and perfect balance. That's not true for you. And it's not true for me. And so he tells us to put off sinful anger and sinful wrath. But not all anger is wrong. Not all wrath is wrong. You and I see a perfect example of Christ. It's it's an illustration that was lived out at the beginning of his earthly ministry and at the end of his earthly ministry. John 2 beginning, Matthew 19 the end. You remember that Jesus goes up on the Temple Mount, the 23 acres. And up top, We have the high priest. There's two. That's one too many. You remember, if you are a Jew, you're a high priest for life. And the high priest is Annas. But Rome has sacked Annas. And a few years later, they sack him in 15. In verse 8, or in 18 AD, they appoint his son Caiaphas high priest. So we got two of them, Annas and Caiaphas. And they're in cahoots together. And they're lining their pockets with the money of others. And they've taken the largest part of the temple, the court of Gentiles, and they're selling animals to be sacrificed on the altar. And they're selling for an exorbitant price. And then they have the money changers, the tables, because your currency is from another country. And they'll exchange it so you can buy the animals with a little markup. And they're lining their pockets. And Jesus said, you have turned God's house, a house of prayer into a den of thieves. And he has the right measured anger, the right measured wrath. And he overturns the tables and he turns a cord into a whip and he drives out those who would turn God's house into a den of thieves. Godly anger, godly wrath requires three characteristics. Always three. It's to the right degree. It's not overspent, overcooked. It's not volcanic. It's always towards sin. It's not about vengeance or revenge or you've ticked me off. And it's always for God's glory. If you want to use anger or wrath in the right way, it requires all three to the right degree against sin and for the glory, the advancement of the kingdom. God does that perfectly. We do it imperfectly. That's why Paul will write in Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. From that, I think I can draw three principles. The first is there is sinless anger. It might be rare, but it happens. Sinless anger, in your anger, do not sin. Again, it requires three characteristics, always to the right degree, always against sin, always for God's glory. The second principle, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. It's telling us to control our emotions, to handle our emotions. Some people like to stuff their emotions, and they stuff and stuff, and then they become a volcano, and they erupt. And it's unpredictable, unwise, Not recommended. 
In fact, it's ungodly. What we ought to do with our emotions is handle them. If they're getting too hot, we ask God, allow me to calm down. I need a time out. I need to go get some air. I need to ask God to allow me to be empathetic towards your position. And we study scripture and we memorize passages, maybe like the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13, so that we can express love or the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 or 23, or just what I cited, Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The second principle of anger is just this. We've got to learn to manage our emotions. It is not adequate to say, I'm hot-tempered, I'm red-headed, or gray-headed as it may be at this age and stage of my life. I can't say that or I'm Irish, or whatever. So what? So what? It doesn't dismiss sin. It doesn't. Just because we have disadvantages in this area or that, it doesn't dismiss sin. We have to own our sin, and we have to stand up to our sin. The third thing I would draw from Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger, is it's an idiom that's to be taken idiomatically rather than woodenly. Every so often I'm at a wedding, not at Highland, not by one of Highland's pastors, but I hear the pastor say to the bride and the groom, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Bridegroom, I don't want you to ever go to bed angry at one another because the Bible says that's a sin. And I want to stand up and say, man, that is terrible advice. And it's misunderstood the passage in a major way. It's an idiom. Everyone in the first century would have understood. It's not saying that you stay up till three in the morning until one just raises the white flag and says, let me go to sleep. Whatever you say is fine. <laughs> That's terrible marriage advice. What it's saying is, don't ignore the conflict. Wait until you have a couple hours. It might be two days from now. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to handle the problem as mature adults. Everyone would have understood that idiom in the first century, we lose it in the 21st century when we take it woodenly. The bottom line is this. Paul says for some of us, out of those 11 vices, maybe the vice that we need to work on is anger, wrath. Because we're exploding or we're stuffing it until we explode. Or we're just really hot-tempered. And we just say, hey, that's who I am. And we dismiss it. But we can't dismiss sin. We've got to claim and name sin and then work on it. For some of us, we have to confess, agree with God, and we have to repent, turn from it. We have to memorize scriptures to be sight at times of weakness. We need to teach ourselves time out. We need to keep very short accounts. We need to have accountability in our lives. And we need to handle ourselves as God would desire us to handle. In this regard, I think of Jonathan Edwards. I don't know if that's a name you know. Jonathan Edwards was the third president of Princeton University. 
He lived from about 1703 to 1758. Humanly speaking, he had as much to do with the first great awakening in our country as anyone. He was a Puritan, a revivalist, a pastor, and an author. In fact, almost all theologians would say he is the greatest theologian ever to live on our soil. So he's a significant mind and theological theologian. That's who he is. And he had a daughter. I don't really know her name. It's either Emily or Esther, depending on which sites and which books I read. Maybe he had both an Emily and an Esther, and somehow the story became conflated, and I don't know. The story's probably true. Her name, not too sure. I'm going to call her Esther. A guy became sweet on Esther. And he came to Jonathan Edwards and said, I'd like to marry Esther. Will you give me your hand in marriage? And in typical Jonathan Edwards fashion, he said, no. No explanation. And the young man said, well, she loves me. I know. No. Well, I love her. I can see that. No. Well, I'm a Christian. She's a Christian. What's wrong with it? And this was his reply. You can find it in lots of literature. Yes, she, my daughter, is a Christian, but the grace of God can live with some with whom no one else could ever live. Ouch. How'd you like your dad to say that about you? I don't even know if it's true, but that's what Jonathan Edwards said. That's what he said about his daughter. I don't know if that was really her characteristic, but what he was saying is this. She so lacks the ability to hold her emotions in check that she will damage a family. So I'm not going to give her hand away in marriage. I don't know if that's true of this gal, but I know it's true of some people. I know some people, maybe some of us, have so allowed our emotions to go unchecked and out of control that we need to do personal work with the Lord and agree, confess, and claim the Holy Spirit if we're a believer, memorize some scripture, give ourselves timeouts, and during those timeouts, ask God to allow you to be, allow me to be empathetic towards our opponent, keep short accounts, think on things that are lovely, I think of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. It kind of is good advice in so many areas, but this one as well. Finally, brothers, sisters, finally, believers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything of excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Think about what is good rather than what is wrong. Be less critical in life. Be less critical towards others and get one's emotions in check. Paul says, this is the way we were prior to Christ. But if we believe in Christ, we now have access to the Spirit of God. We can start going in another direction. It will be two steps back and one step forward. It won't be immediate change, but we can have incremental change and get our lives in order. But it's not just those two vices. 
He gives us another in verse 8. Malice. Again, this is that word that really encompasses all of the vices. But if I were to summarize malice, it's this. It's self-centered. Malice is saying, what is my benefit, not yours? Malice is doing what is for my benefit, not yours. And when we come to Christ, we want to begin to think of others as more important than ourselves. And the king is most important of all. And so malice is kind of deficient Christianity where we are self-centered and we think about our needs and our wants above that of another. Paul says, that's who you were, Jeff. That's not who I want you to be. And so you got to begin to take two steps forward and you're gonna take a step back and then three steps forward and probably two steps back. But empowered by God's spirit, we're going to incrementally see change in your life. The next term is slander. It's a Greek word you probably know. It's blasphemous. It's really an interesting word because when this word talks about God, we translate it blasphemy. When it talks about human, the same word we translate slander. So blasphemous towards God is when we speak about God or God's word or God's morality or God's ethic as less than perfect. That's blasphemy. When we denigrate any part of God, his character, salvation in Christ alone, his ethic, his morality, or his word, that's blasphemy. But when we do it to one another, it's called slander. One scholar, he hasn't quite convinced me of this, but he said something that I had never heard before. He said, we are made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. And therefore, when we slander one another, it is a form of blasphemy because we are denigrating what is made in God's image. It's clever. Not sure it's true, but it's clever. This is true. James 3.10, from the same mouth come blessing and curses. Brother and sister, this should not be. What he's saying is this. We come to church, we sing praises. And then sometimes we leave church and we denigrate, curse, and, and belittle one another. That should not be. How we use our mouths matters to the Lord. Think of uh, Matthew 12, 36 and 37. It says this. I tell you on that day, the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. We need to guard our mouths. Finally, talking about guarding our mouths, he says that there ought to be no obscene talk from our mouths. It's really an interesting phrase, obscene talk. It's actually found very similar in Ephesians. I want to read the one from Ephesians 5, 4. It's a colorful word. Let me read it. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, moral agino. We derive the word moron from this. Let there be no filthiness. Stop being a moron. That's what he says. 
nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What he's telling us is if we have to talk with sexual innuendo, if we have to talk like a sophomoric individual, then we ought to examine our hearts. Remember what scripture says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I need to talk like a sophomore, then I have revealed my heart. I've revealed my heart. And it doesn't matter if I'm in my 50s or not. I'm acting something quite a bit less. And so go back to that passage in Matthew 12. A day is coming when we will give account for every idle word that we have uttered. Why does it really matter? Because God says it's sin. And what did sin do? It took our Savior, Jesus Christ. Fully God became man, lived a perfect life, went to the cross, was nailed to the cross and covered with our sin so that the fellowship between Father and Son was broken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the cost of sin. And we who have accepted Christ, he took the wrath upon himself so that there is no wrath. Romans 8, 1. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but our relationship can still be damaged. We can lose future eternal rewards. Walking in the freshness of Christ can be damaged if you and I don't put off the vices and begin to put on the things of Christ. Finally, he adds one more. He says that we ought to guard our mouths Towards the truth. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self. With its practices. John puts it rather starkly. John 8.44. He says this. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies. He speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Or one translation, the father of all lies. When we share a polite lie, a white lie, a little gray lie, or a whopper, we speak the negative language of the enemy of our soul, Satan. In Titus 1-2, it says that God is an unlying God. And so it behooves us to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God, because when we tell the truth, we imitate the Lord. When we lie, we imitate Satan. Because we are raised with Christ, Colossians 3.1. We put off 11 vices, Colossians 5-9. to And we follow the creator of our soul, Colossians 3.10. Back in Colossians 1.15, we learn that the creator is Christ. So what Paul is saying is this. When we come to Christ, we put off certain vices and we imitate Christ. What would Christ say when we're tempted to lie? What would Christ say when we're tempted to lose control and, and lose our emotions and be angry in the wrong way? What would Christ say when we're tempted to blaspheme? What would Christ say when we're tempted to slander? 
What would Christ say when we're tempted to offer moronic, sophomoric language to get a laugh, to get a joke in? What would Christ say? We're to imitate the creator who is Christ. As I thought about this, I thought of a man named Bill. Bill, at a young age, learned that he had an addictive personality. Maybe that's true for some of us. His addiction of choice was alcohol. But it wasn't long before he wanted to be free from his addiction. But it held him tight. Some of us here today are addicted to alcohol. Sometimes we deny it. We lie about it. Everybody else knows the truth, but we deny it. Bill wanted freedom from his addiction. Sometimes he would get a three-month chip, and then he would drink. Sometimes he would get a one-year chip, and then he would drink. Somewhere along the way, he came to a saving knowledge of Christ. He believed in Jesus as his Savior, But that didn't change his addiction. You see, the truth is this. There are very few people that when they come to Christ, their area of sin suddenly dissipates. That doesn't happen to most of us. Most of us, the area we struggled in prior to knowing Christ, we still struggle in after knowing Christ. That was true for Bill. But what did change is this. He's now empowered by God's Spirit. And he still wants freedom. And he sought medical help. He had an accountability brother. He went to regular meetings. He did everything that he ought to do. And he would have freedom. And then he would lapse back. And he would go even further and have freedom. And and then he would lapse back. But all the while, the Lord kept growing him. And he would take five steps forward and, and then a step back. And if you have an addictive personality, you know that's how it often works. But he didn't give up. And a day came when he actually had sobriety and remained sober to this day. He went to uh, a rescue mission in Evansville, Indiana. Took a job there helping others to find sobriety. And individuals who knew him prior to Christ and now began to talk about him as the new Bill. In fact, it stuck. Everyone just started calling him New Bill. It wasn't long before nobody even knew his last name. He was just New Bill. But it took years. It took years. If you know Jesus, you're new fill in your name. New Jeff, new Betty Ann. But that doesn't mean that all the vices just go away. They don't. I'd love to tell you they do. They don't. We're going to struggle until we get called home to glory. But we are now empowered by God's Spirit. We have something we didn't have prior to Christ. And we have the body And this is a church made up of broken individuals. Some of whom you can trust. To pray for you and to spur you on to take the next step.
You're new and fill in your name. But it's time to do business. And out of those 11 vices, I doubt anyone in this room has mastered all 11. But let's suppose you have. Flip to the next page of scripture, you're going to find something you haven't. It's just the truth. And so we take the next step and we take the next step and we take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And there's three steps forward and sometimes two steps back and five steps forward and one step back. And, and honestly, sometimes it's three steps forward and four steps back. We're kind of in a slump and we need the brother and the sister to come along and say, hey, it's time to get back at it. And that's what God's saying to us today. It's time to get back at it. That's who you were. This is who you are. What does God want to do in your life, in my life, to become more and more like God desires us to be? Let's pray. Father God, uh, your grace is immense. Your mercy is boundless. And we are grateful. And Father, we're thankful that we don't get what we deserve, which would be wrath. If we know Jesus, he took it all for us. And we're so grateful. But Lord, sometimes we get a little too lax. And we need Paul to say, put off those vices. Become what you, Jesus, desire us to be. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would empower us to address an area in our life today different for each of us. Maybe one of the 11, maybe something else, but help us to do business with you today and to address an area that is long overdue and help us to see victory. Empower us to see victory for our betterment but more important, for your great glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.